and welcome back to Basic Bible 101. Today we're going to cover the last story in the Old Testament that is one of the major stories, and this is about Esther. The book of Esther is one of the ones that we skipped. It's right before the book of Job, and it probably is the one book that covers the as late as we know in the Old Testament because it is covering the time when the Persians were in charge and before the Greeks came through and, and took over everything from the Persians and the Medes. Actually, the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It is the one where uh, one of the minor prophets, Malachi, talks about a coming Messiah. And then we don't hear anything in uh, from the Lord as far as prophets for 400 years and not until the time that John the Baptist starts preaching and that is part of the New Testament study which will begin just as soon as these podcasts for the Old Testament finish up. But for today we are going to learn about a young woman who lived during the time of the captivity when the um, Israelites were still under Persian uh, and Mede the meat control. And so um, the king at the time is King Xerxes. Well, that's how we'll say it. It's X-E-R-X-E-S. And he is kind of a, a real party animal. He throws a lot of big parties for his uh, many, um, I guess you'd call uh, officers and stuff like that, people who do his bidding around his kingdom, which of course is huge now, all the way from India to it talks about the land of Kush. It's a uh, far northern area, and of course all of the Middle Eastern area um, that we know today uh, as Israel. So, one of the things we know about this time is that the Persians would, when they threw these big parties, they that's when they would make these big decisions. So it's more or less like he got all of his generals together, and they, while they're partying and, and get good and soused, they decide to uh, come up with a battle strategy. Doesn't sound very bright to me, but that was how they did it. Even and if they made some decisions, even if they were sober, they would wait until they'd had a lot to drink to rethink it through. So I, I think that's kind of odd, but that's the way that this um, particular king ruled. So during one of his parties, when they had been celebrating for day 180 days and then um, really had a big feast for seven days, it's during this time that they're all really enjoying themselves and the king uh, requests that his uh, queen, Queen Vash, Vashti, V-A-S-H-T-I, Vashti is what I'll call her, um, he summons her to come to him so that everybody, all the men in his party can see how beautiful she is. And of course she is at the same time throwing a big party for all the women, all the wives, and uh, decides that she doesn't want to come. And so she sends back a message that I cannot come to, to you right now. And of course, that does not sit well with the king. In fact, he's so mad, he gathers together some of his counselors and says, what should I do? You know, I've basically been humiliated by the queen. And they say, well, you know what? You cannot let her get away with this because if you do, wives everywhere will stand up to their husbands and we'll just have chaos. So obviously it was a different time in the world. Thankfully, things have changed. But you can see that the king was not going to let her get away with this. And of course the counselor says, well, you just need to uh, cast her away. She can no longer be queen. And that is what happens. He basically sends this uh, summons that she is being stripped of her royal 
um, position and uh, cast away and, and is no longer his wife and she, certainly no longer queen. And so when this happens, he's kind of, you know, he's fine with it for a while, but a couple of years go by and he's sad and missing having a queen. And, you know, it's not that he didn't have women. Of course, they always had all these different, you know, servants and concubines and all this kind of stuff. But you could tell that he was really looking for someone to be a companion. And so he's kind of melancholy and his counselors recognize this and they say, you know what, let's do a search far and wide over all the kingdom of the most beautiful women and bring them to you and you can pick one that you think is worthy to be your queen. And so sure enough, that's what happens. Well, during the process of this search, there's a young woman who's a Jewish girl named Esther. Uh, her actual uh, Jewish name, Hebrew name, is Hadassah. And she is very naturally beautiful. Um, she's been raised by her uncle or cousin Mordecai. Obviously, he's quite a bit older than her in that um, he was able to basically adopt her when her parents were uh, passed away and so we see that Esther is brought into the king's harem their um, process for presenting the women you would think was some kind of like a Miss America contest or something but what they would do is for a year the woman had to go through uh, beauty treatments basically they would uh, you know put uh, the best cosmetics on her, the best clothes, all kinds of scents of myrrh and all the um, uh, exotic um, oils and, and everything that they had at their disposal to make a woman beautiful and smell good and be, um, you know, sought after was uh, put on these women. They were fed real well so that they looked good and healthy. And so we find that at the end of a year, it is time for the different girls to go to the king and what they do is they would just send one a night to him and uh, then the next day she would return to the harem and he could decide if she was worthy or if not. Uh, Esther goes through this year-long beauty treatments and then it's her time to go to the king and what they would do is that the, the girl could bring whatever she wanted with her to when she went to visit the king and so she just um, asked the um, attendant of all of the uh, harem what should I bring with me and so she only brought what he suggested so she was very wise in really deferring to this king of the or head of the harem so that she would be the most likely to please the king and of course she found favor with the um, guys that would work with the harem anyway because of her personality and so she goes to the king and he decides that she is the one and so he makes her queen crowns her queen and she then is uh, above all of the other uh, girls in the harem and and is given great honor and in the process her uncle Mordecai kind of tends to hang around the castle on the outside of the gate uh, and but reminds her not to reveal who she is that she's a Jew and so she she's keeps quiet about that and enjoys all of the wonderful benefits of being the queen of this massive empire until the day that uh, Haman the king's kind of right-hand man decides that he's gonna make trouble well Haman uh, doesn't like Mordecai 
I don't know if he sees him out there and he hates what Mordecai says about him or what, but he has this little growing feud between him and Mordecai. And because Haman is a very important person and has raised up quite a bit in, in, through the king's ranks so that he is like second in command, uh, he, he decides uh, that he is going to do away with Mordecai. Well, in the process, there, uh, Mordecai hears, hears by way of the grapevine a couple of guys talking about how they're going to uh, kill the king or, or somehow cause problems for the king and uh, take over or whatever. And the, uh, he reports it to Esther, and Esther reports it to the king, and he immediately uh, writes, has uh, written up the, the, uh, in the royal records the good deed that Mordecai has done, and then has the two guys who were plotting this um, action of treason against the king killed. So this sort of sets the stage for Mordecai being a, uh, considered kind of a good guy around the, the um, castle. But the thing is, Mordecai, being a Jew, would not bow down and worship anybody but, of course, the God. So when Haman would require people to bow down and honor him, um, Mordecai was one of them ones that wouldn't. And so that just, again, infuriated Haman. He would get to the point where he would go to his wife at night and just say, what am I going to do about this guy? He's driving me crazy. And so the his wife finally said, well, build a gallows and have him hung from it. And don't worry about it. I mean, you're far more powerful than he is. And so Hammond kind of likes this idea and he decides, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get rid of Hammond. Well, the night before he has plans to kill Mordecai, to hang him, uh, the king can't sleep that night, and so he wakes up and he's reading through the oracles, and he discovers that even though Mordecai had been uh, so loyal to the king and warned him of this danger, he had never really been honored for it. So the next morning, when Haman comes in, and he's all ready to tell the king that he wants to have Mordecai killed, and and so he's pres he's getting ready to tell the king this, and the king just says to him, what should be done for the person that the king chooses to honor? And of course, Haman, being his conceited self, thinks that he's talking about him. And so he says, well, I think that you should bring one of the king's horses that the king has ridden and uh, place upon the person their royal robes that the king would wear and set him up on this horse and parade him through the town with people saying, here's what happens to the one that the king wants to honor. And so the king thinks about that and he says, that's a good idea. Go do that for Mordecai. Well, obviously, Hammond was, you know, just struck with ugh, the irony of the situation. So he leaves because he's got to go and honor uh, Mordecai. And he hates it so badly the whole time because he's the one that's, you know, basically set up for this honoring of Mordecai. And so that night, he's, he's so frustrated, he's trying to think, well, what can he do? And finally... He thinks, well, I know what I'll do. We will set up this law that, because um, he knew that Mordecai was a Jew, that all the Jews need to be, that they're an enemy of the state and all of them need to be killed on this particular day. And so they set this day, and that's the day that every, all throughout the province, uh, the kingdom, they are going to uh, kill the Jews that day. And so he goes to the king and he tells the king, you look, you have these enemies and we need to do this. You know, we need to get rid of them. We need to just, you know, uh, 
expunge the enemy. And so the king says, okay, well, that sounds good. And he hands him his royal ring and says, okay, make it official. And so uh, Haman writes up the laws and stamps them with the king's um, stamp. And so they're put into effect. Well, as soon as word gets out, because these letters are sent all over the kingdom, Mordecai hears about it. And of course, all of the Jews are greatly distressed because they realize this spells the end for them. And so some word gets back, uh, Mordecai call, make, gets a message to Esther that says, I have to talk to you. And so Esther says, what's wrong? And he says, well, it looks like the king's going to have all of us killed. And, you know, she's kind of taken aback by it. And he says, but don't think that you will be spared. You know, you definitely you're going to be one of the ones that's going to get killed too. And so you need to do something about it. You know, you have the king's ear. Well, at this point, Esther, who hasn't been summoned by the king in a month, is thinking, I don't even know how I can get in to talk to him. But, and of course, there's this rule that if you go to present yourself to the king, that, you know, you will instantly be killed if you go into the courtroom unless you, he holds out his scepter. And so Esther has a very good likelihood that he won't honor her, and so then that'll be the end for her. And so she you know, kind of is like, oh, well, okay, let's fast and pray. And then I will present this to the king and see if somehow we can save our people. And so they do. They spend this time in fasting and prayer. And then she gets up enough nerve and goes to the court. And she has this, this attitude that if I perish, I perish. But I have to do this. And perhaps that's why God brought me into this position to begin with. And so... Sure enough, she comes into the court, and the king points his scepter and allows her to come forward, and he says, What do you want, my Esther? If it's half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And Esther is uh, chooses her words very wisely, and she says, I just want you to come to a banquet at uh, in your honor um, tonight. I'm going to fix this, have this elaborate dinner fixed, and I want you to come. And he says, Well, okay. And then she says, And bring your you know right-hand guy, Hammond. And so, sure enough, they, Hammond thinks this is so great, he's been invited, and the only other person that's been invited besides the king is him, and they're going to the queen's dinner. So they go that night, and they have dinner, and finally the king says, okay, what do you really want, Esther? And she says, well, if it pleases you, I'd rather just have you come back tomorrow night for another big dinner. And so the king finally agrees. And so the next night, sure enough, they have the big dinner again, and Hammond is there. And finally the king says, okay, Esther, what is it that you want? And so she proceeds to tell him about this law that's about to kill her and all of her people. And that Hammond was the one who decided upon the law. And, of course, Hammond's right there, and suddenly he is struck with fear, and he's so afraid. Well, the king is furious, and he gets up and runs out of the room. Well, when he runs out of the room, Hammond gets down on his knees and clings to the queen's legs and just says, please, you know, spare my life. Suddenly he realizes how dangerous he, it really is for him, you know, that it's, it's nearly over. Well, sadly, <laughs> the king comes back and he sees uh, Hammond, you know, basically attacking the queen. And he says, how could you even think to do this? You know, not only do you, you know, want to kill my wife, but you are dishonoring her right here you know, basically trying to molest her. And it's about this time that one of the eunuchs that kind of keeps track over the harem proceeds to tell the king that there's a gallows that was built 
for a hanging 75 feet high. And so the king turns to him and says, okay, have, have Haman uh, hung on it. And so the very uh, gallow that Haman had built for Mordecai, he himself was, was killed on. So we see that, that Esther is successful. However, this law is still in effect. And the king says, you know, once it's been signed with this, my, the formal ring, you know, the official royal ring, it can't be taken back. And she says, well, could you at least allow my people to gather together that day and have the right to defend themselves? And so he, he agrees and he gives um, Esther the, the royal ring and has Mordecai come in and says, you know, realizes what has happened, that, you know, that they have been uh, wrongly targeted. And so he, he puts Mordecai in charge of all of the proceedings that are about to happen and says, here, you go ahead and pro make this proclamation, and here's my ring to go ahead and make it official. So sure enough, that day throughout all the kingdom, uh, the uh, edict was sent out that the Jews had the right to gather together that day and to defend themselves. And what that meant is that all of their enemies that would want to have attacked them would be much less likely to because now they're a fighting force. And so basically it saved the Jewish people. Uh, the, the significance of this is that, you know, it's at that point that they could have been annihilated, and yet God basically stepped in and would not let this happen. Some interesting things about the book of Esther, it's never, you never actually hear God mentioned, and yet you can tell that he's behind the scenes in all of the coincidences and uh, things that happen the way that they do. Secondly, uh, even today the Jews celebrate this as one of their... Um, yearly uh, parties or whatever you want to call them kind of uh, special events and this one's called Purim and they call it Purim because Pur was when they would like throw the dice and so this was the uh, the dice had been thrown and had been cast in the favor of the Jews and so from this point on they were to celebrate this every year and so they did and even today they do and they celebrate it by building tents it's kind of called the feast of tents or whatever where they build these little um, tents and live in them not tents per se they're usually made out of wood or whatever just little shacks basically and it's to remind the people of their wandering in the wilderness and of their being slaves and captives in to, for under Persia as well and then um, what they do is then they would give gifts to each other and um, celebrate it as God's rescue. And so it is a time of feasting and, and, and celebrating that God has taken care of them. And as it turned out, the Jews that were in outlining areas kind of got the message that they were supposed to celebrate and whatever um, a little bit before even the Jews within Jerusalem. And so in Jerusalem, they actually celebrate this like an extra day or something like that. There's a little bit difference in the time frame, but if you live outside of Jerusalem, you celebrate Purim uh, one day before the rest of the, uh, uh, Jerusalem did. So it's just kind of an interesting story. And as you can see, Esther played a big part in this um, the history of the Jewish nation. And because of that, her, the story of her is told at Purim every year. Okay, so we've seen the incredible difference that one person can make by standing up for your beliefs, even if it means your life. And that uh, 
Sometimes you are put in positions uniquely because God's going to use you in a mighty way. And it can be a big risk to you. You know, sometimes we think, well, we enjoy all the favors of God. And yet that's not by accident. You know, God needs you and wants you to uh, give back, to um, be available for his call. Uh, Okay, we've seen here that... Uh, it's important that we teach our kids to do the right thing. And in this case, Mordecai had uh, brought Esther up in such a way that she knew the right, what the right thing was to do, not to just live for herself, which would have been so easy. She could have kept it a secret that she was a Jew. It's possible she could have survived this. Uh, it would have meant she didn't have to risk her own life or giving up her Um, position as queen but as it turned out because she did do the right thing God not only honored her and saved her people but she got to remain as the queen and Mordecai her uncle father cousin whatever you want to call him her guardian is raised to a second in command to King Xerxes so this is an excellent story and example of God working things out for good. We read in Romans 8, 28, it says that God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we see here that God worked this out for the people of Israel and for Esther and her family. So um, that's it for today's lesson. I want to, that and actually finishes up the Old Testament. Stay tuned for a recap of the Old Testament that will... Uh, basically cover from the beginning to end it will be a good review and those of you that would like to take the final over the Old Testament I would encourage you to email me Margie M-A-R-G-I-E at basicbible.com and you can check the website too there may end up being a link by the time some of you listen to this there may actually be a link where you can download the final Okay, uh, thanks for listening, and I want to encourage you to stay with us as we cover the New Testament as well. The New Testament's a lot shorter. It's only 13 lessons versus this one, which has been 33, and it will be 34 by the time we do the recap. Um, So it will go a lot quicker. All right, thanks, and uh, have a great day, and be blessed. (music) 